Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, coming up. Backwards and forwards and we gingerly put our bikes up to the side of the, the road and tried to look for somewhere to camp and suddenly Charlie looked down and went, oh my god there's an unexploded mortar about yay big. So we kind of wheeled our bikes back, back onto the road really slowly and carefully, cycled on a bit, it was getting really dark and we just had to set up camp. So we found what we thought was like a safe area set up our tent and the next morning as I went to take my tent peg out looked down and there was another massive mortar which we just narrowly escaped sleeping on so I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years from Everest climbers to polar explorers world record holders and many more I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on your own grand adventure. But what is left for the adventurers and explorers in the 21st century? Well, let's find out. My next guest is an adventurer and journalist. She has done some incredible adventures over the years, from starting from absolutely nothing to deciding to cycle from Malaysia to London, where her adventure kicked off. On the podcast today, we talk about that adventure and how that propelled her into all sorts of different trips down the years. To one of her big trips in Guyana, where she kayaked from source to sea with Laura Bingham and Ned Knight. On the podcast today, we discuss some of these incredible trips that she's done down the years and have quite an honest and frank conversation about the sort of future and travel. So I am delighted to introduce Pip Stewart to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Nice to be here. Absolute pleasure. Well, it's so great to have you on. As I say, I have followed you for many, many years and to get you on the show to talk about some of your adventures is just amazing. And before we sort of jump into your adventures, I always like to start at the beginning and sort of talk about how you got into it and the sort of early early stages of your adventure career. Yeah, well, actually, like many of the guests on your podcast, it was... Um a complete accident really. I had a bit of a false start in business. Um, I used to work at Innocent Drinks, like selling smoothies into schools. And I quickly realised I was a bit shit at this. And um, I sort of left before I was sacked, to be honest, John. And um, essentially, I knew that I loved um, travel. I knew that I loved meeting people. And I was sort of looking for a way to make taking out a year to sort of reconsider what I wanted to do look legitimate to my parents mainly. So I applied to go back to university to do a master's in journalism, um, but in Hong Kong. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll, I'll scratch that travel itch. I'll get something useful out of it potentially. Um, and it turned out I absolutely loved journalism and I loved um, sort of being in Hong Kong and, and learning from my, my colleagues and yeah, so that sort of started this whole interest in, in travel and telling stories. Um, and I suppose from Hong Kong, my partner Charlie then got a job in Malaysia and he'd followed me from London to Hong Kong. So I thought, right, probably time for me to go to Malaysia. Uh, we stayed there for a couple of years and then ultimately he suggested cycling home. And at this point, you know, I wasn't, I'm not like you, I'm not an athlete. I'm definitely not an athlete adventurer, but um I found myself saying, sure, like, uh, yeah, why not? Let's cycle home. Um, and at the time, I didn't put much thought into it, John. I just thought, OK, well, if I can sit at my desk from nine to five, I can probably sit on a bicycle. Um, the reality, is, as you know, is somewhat different to that because we didn't really train at all. Um, the first time I sat on a fully laden bike was as we were leaving Kuala Lumpur. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what have I signed up to? Um, I think three weeks in, had a complete panic at the side of the road. We'd barely hit a hill. And I was like, I can't do this, Charlie. Like, threw my bike down. And then, yeah, eventually he said something to me that has stuck and I've used in every other adventure, which is, you know, this is not a physical journey. This is a mental one. And I think it was a combination of things on that trip that really sort of kickstarted this desire to have more of a quote unquote career in this space, because I realized traveling slowly and by human power, you uncover so many interesting stories. You go to places that perhaps aren't covered by mainstream media. Um, and I just loved it. And it, t- it ticked a lot of boxes. And 
I sort of came home, had no job whatsoever, uh, had a slight panic when I realised prices in London are expensive and I needed to pay the bills. So I managed to get a job at Red Bull as their adventure editor. And then slowly things started to snowball from that. Because I'd done that big journey, other people then approached me to say, look, we're, we're looking for people to do other journeys with. And um, yeah, so when people say, how did you get into this? It's a complete accident. It was finding um, something that I was interesting, interested interested in following that up and then it kind of snowballed from there really i think it's so interesting as you said about the physical and mental like it's a mental journey because so often when you start these you sort of have this idea that you need to be really fast you need to push yourself and when you take a step back and actually take your time and immerse yourself in the situation you find you uncover so much more Oh, absolutely. And I am a huge fan. I think the world is split between team fast and team slow, actually. And I'm <laughs> I'm fully in camp team slow because, yeah, I do think when you slow down, you definitely immerse yourself more, as you say, and you kind of uh, get a deeper understanding. You, you have more time for conversation. And actually, now when I travel, one of my favorite things to do is just situate myself in a coffee shop, find where all the old men are hanging out. That's usually where I go to. Like they usually have the best coffee. And then just chat. And and really, that's like, yeah, that's just magic, really. Slowing down and, and really getting under the, the skin of a place as far as you can as, as a traveller. Yeah, I, I remember, I think we were speaking to Geordie Stewart on episode five or something, four or five. And he said, unless we basically spoke that unless you're breaking a record, no one actually cares if you travel from Malaysia to London in 101 days or 150 days. It doesn't matter unless you're Mark Beaumont, who we had on and you're doing it around the world in 80 days. No one's going to care. Mm -hmm. And and And, to to that point, John, no one really cares generally about like, (laughs) and and, and I think that's the thing. It's that's where we've got to find meaning and enjoyment in our in our own lives, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. And uh, for people listening, I always I always try and tell them that this is the way to sort of go if you're going down this route, because in your mind, you're always thinking, I need to push myself. I need to slightly suffer. We had Elsa Kent on the podcast last week and she was talking about the same thing that she sort of needed to go fast when actually always at the end, there's always a slight regret of maybe if I'd just taken my time Mm. and slowed down, there would be more opportunities. Yeah, I I think that's really insightful because actually it's, it's the same thing in life, isn't it? Like why why are we doing, I don't think we often stop and question, why are we doing what we do? Why are we rushing to these things? Why do we want to do world first? Why do we want to do these grand trips? And I suppose as someone who has done some, um, a lot of it comes down to sort of insecurity, doesn't it? Insecurity, a desire to prove something. I think probably, and you know better because you've probably interviewed a lot of people in this space, but I feel like people are either running from something or to something. And um, perhaps a bit more honesty about that. And actually a lot, a lot of what you can achieve doing grand adventures can also be achieved through like therapy and discussion and a, a bit more introspective thought. But um, yeah, it's, it's just one way to sort of understand yourself, other people in the world around you, isn't it? And I personally love it. So yeah, I, I, as you say, because I think, you know, we've spoken to nearly 46, 47 people on this podcast and there is a sort of theme around it of, you know, when we had Emily Scott on on episode nine, she talked about sort of she was generally unhappy and sort of wanted to pursue. And probably, I don't know, similar with you or myself, is that either your time at work where you're constantly thinking about something else and you want to sort of go out and prove yourself. And by going on these trips, you sort of feel like you need to push yourself a bit further. And as you say, it's that sort of, mental which can be sort of used to channel in a really good direction yeah definitely and I, I think a lot of the journeys that I've been on have definitely been motivated by fear and it comes down to that sort of fear of not fully living that sort of like what am I doing we get like one amazing precious life how am I using it and it doesn't have to be and this is what I'm coming to understand it doesn't have to be these grand adventures it can just be and at the risk of sounding like a crazed hippie, literally just looking at the underside of a leaf because my gosh, they're beautiful. And yeah, I, th- I think it is about that. It's just about finding what works for you guys, finding out what gives you meaning and purpose and then 
trying to live a bit more in line with that. Whether yeah. that's traveling or whether that's like, you know, going for a swim on the beach. So during your first trip going, as you said, London, uh, Malaysia to London, and that was with Charlie, who is now your boyfriend. Yeah, long-suffering <laughs> partner of about 13 years. And so um, when you were doing it and sort of starting out, what was the sort of, as you say, you'd never done anything like this. What was the sort of, I, as you said, the sort of mental, it's a mental game rather than a physical one. But for you who had never done this, what was the sort of feelings like when you were sort of, I don't know, getting ready, preparing for, I, I mean, what are you talking, five, six months? Well, literally, in, in this case, it was like, should we do it? Yes, let's do it, basically. So we knew that we wanted to go home and we talked about maybe going back overland, but by trains and things. And I think there is something to be said for setting yourself a big, hairy goal. You know, I think I wanted to be... And this is where I think we need to be careful. I, at, at that point, I think I wanted to be the person who could say, I've cycled halfway around the world. If I'm honest, it was ego, ego talking. What I realized when I was sat on the bike was that I had to be the person to cycle halfway around the world. And I had to put the effort in and, and saying something because you want to appear a certain way and doing something is very different. Um, and I definitely feel like these journeys have humbled me. So I think... To answer your question about what sort of emotions I was going through, there was um, excitement at doing something incredible and hairy that I wasn't entirely sure I could achieve. There was a lot of fear, um, at like, oh my gosh, we've got to do this. And then also, as I mentioned, you know, three weeks in, there was a lot of embarrassment because I told everybody I was going to cycle from Malaysia to London and there I was, barely able to get up a hill. And I'm like, how... And then the self negative self-talk starts, right? It's like, why did you think you were capable of this? Have you seen yourself? You're five foot four. You like to eat cake. Your ass is super padded. You know, all this like negative chatter that we all have that kind of prevent us from doing what we really want to do. All that started up. And so I think the beauty of adventure is that it just pushes you to all sides of yourself. There are times when you're like, oh my God, go me. Look at me go. Like that feeling of pride and confidence and then, as you know as well, you have the unbelievable lows. They're like, what am I doing? Like, this was a terrible idea. How did I think I was capable of this? Um, so I think that, that to me, is what I love about adventure because it's not always positive. And I think that reflects life in so many ways. You know, we are pushed down our throats in life. Like, it's all about happiness. And I think that's slightly misleading because... I think this constant focus on being happy inevitably makes us more unhappy because actually maybe we should focus on the wonderful range of emotions that we feel as humans. And if we can accept that we have these bad days and accept that we have amazing days and just take them for what they are, then it it sort of becomes easier to deal with. And ultimately, ironically, you become happier for it. So yeah, I think that that's to me, like what I loved about the travel was the lows as well as the highs. I think, I don't know, it was the same with you because, as I say, very sort of similar. The first trip was a big cycle ride, having gone from nothing to a big cycle ride. It was the first three weeks which were the most painful, the most sort of draining on your body. And it was probably similar to you. And that's, if once you get past the three weeks, then it's just a sort of slog of every day cycling, but your legs have sort of getting used to it. Yeah. The and first how, three how did weeks, you deal with it, John? Well, I, I remember sort of being in, I was going across America and as they said, I'd done very little training for it, but the first three days it was fine. And then suddenly your legs just stiffen up, getting off, your legs feel like jelly, like you cannot walk. But then suddenly, I think on like the second week or third week, it was all gone. And then from there, it was not plain sailing per se, but you had the the strength and the stamina to just keep slowly building up and your legs were always just getting used to it now. Yeah, I, th I think that's so interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I think before I did this sort of journey, I, I looked at people who had done crazy journeys and I thought, God, like, I'm not like you. There's no way I can do this. And actually, I think everybody could do it. If, they, if you can sit at a desk from nine to five, you can sit on a bike or you can sit in a kayak or it's just about kind of gritting it out a bit, isn't it? It's pushing through that day three when you're like, oh my God, my legs. Um, and I think if you do that for long enough, then suddenly these things, you grow and you develop, don't you? 
Yeah, because we were also speaking like when you're on these sort of trips, day to day is pretty much the same. You just get up, cycle, eat, cycle, sleep, repeat. Yeah. And so that like a day job, that's your job as it is. You're just going through the motions again and again and seeing incredible things along the way. Absolutely. And, and it becomes it becomes so simple. And that's the other thing, the other secret of adventures is you don't have to worry about all the other stuff, the admin and the to-do list. It's like, if you can wake up, keep yourself alive, go to bed, like that's a successful day. And I think there's something really beautifully simple about that. And actually, I realized that on my, my journey in Guyana, a kayak journey, which I'm sure we'll touch on soon. But yeah, it was just beautifully simple. And suddenly there's so many benefits to technology and I love it. We wouldn't be able to speak now, but equally we are bombarding ourselves with more and more stimulus and we are part of nature ultimately and I think when we strip everything away and we allow that quietness to come back into our lives it does it does shift a lot of things and it does bring up a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't notice in our otherwise busy and hectic lives. I sort of found it like a sort of form of meditation when you're cycling I don't know on a straight road for six hours straight because that's all, that's all you're doing is just looking ahead, cycling. You're thinking of nothing else other than what's ahead of you. And it is that sort of form of meditation where you're just sort of so absorbed in the now and not Absolutely. thinking about anything else. Yeah. And just the spinning of the legs. And it's, it's just, yeah, there, when you get into that flow state, it is just magic. But there are also days where you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, what? <laughs> how do I distract myself? Where's my next food coming from? Like all of that. Yeah, there are those moments, especially when it gets to dusk and you haven't found a place to camp. You're like, uh, oh, yes. God, <laughs> this could be interesting. <laughs> and so how long did it take you to get from Malaysia to London? So that took us 13 months. So to your point about slow oh, wow. travel, like Charlie, he's tall, lanky, very much a cycling build, if you like. I'm, as I mentioned, five foot four and like to eat cake. So I think I inevitably slowed him down. Um but ironically, he said he wouldn't change it. So that was a 13-month journey. Came back home just before Christmas. All very exciting. And then the reality of, oh, gosh, like, we need to pay bills and, and get, a, uh, get a job. So, yeah, it was, uh, it Rea- was fun. Funny reality race. hits home. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> and from that trip, um, what were the sort of lessons do you think you learned? Because as you say, amazingly, you and Charlie are still together after such a long and probably quite intense trip. Oh my gosh, well, you literally see everything, John. There's like <laughs> the romance, uh, the mystery, shall we say, has gone. Um, but there's something beautiful about that as well. That kind of sense that you know someone and you've got those shared stories of being like, oh, do you remember when we did this? And and I sort of think if we can survive that together, we can pretty much get through anything. So, um, yeah, I would highly recommend it as a test of a relationship. It's just like a good indoctrination, um, so to speak. But, yeah, it, I loved it. I really loved it. I wouldn't change it. And what were the sort of amazing stories that you still tell each other 13 years later? Well, we narrowly escaped being blown up in Tajikistan. So we accidentally camped in a field of mortars um, and we only realized this because we sort of cycled, pushed up, you know, you're saying like looking for somewhere to camp and we pushed our bikes off the side of the road on the Pamir highway, which and Tajikistan, um, had a little river running be- like between Afghanistan and Tajikistan. And so over the decades, there'd been a lot of, um, mortars sort of sent backwards and forwards. And we gingerly put our bikes up to the side of the, the road and tried to look for somewhere to camp. And suddenly Charlie looked down and went, oh my God, there's an unexploded mortar about yay big. So we kind of wheeled our bikes back, back onto the road really slowly and carefully, cycled on a bit. It was getting really dark and we just had to set up camp. So we found what we thought was like a safe area, set up our tent. And the next morning as I went to take my tent peg out, looked down and there was another massive mortar, which we just narrowly escaped sleeping on. So yeah, as soon as we got to the capital, we basically went, um, yeah, by the way, there's a couple of mines in this particular area that you, or unexploded mortars you might want to look at, which was possibly the most hairy moment of the trip, but it, it was all fine, survived it. And then just, you know, other things like being invited into a wedding in Uzbekistan, you know, we're sweating, smelly, you know, that like vinegar smell that you get when you sweated too much and your clothes haven't been washed, you know, just pulled into a wedding, like vodka shoved into our hands. And um, it was just, it was amazing. And I think 
it was the people like it's it's so cliched but I think connection and for me that's what travel um and adventure is about is connection whether it's with yourself with other people or the world around you and I think I came back from that journey just realizing having worked in traditional media where there's a there's a little saying that if it bleeds it leads which is a horrible expression but I was very disillusioned uh covering news you know it was it's it's not the most uplifting, shall we say. Whereas when you're actually going out and meeting people in the world, you realise actually 99% of people are blooming amazing and mainstream media just focuses on the kind of, well, the sensational stories. Um, and it just it just gave me a whole new perspective on the kind of stories and the kind of storytelling I wanted to do. Whereabouts was that? Was that sort of down the sort of Wacang corridor or are we talking a bit, bit further on? Yeah, exactly that. The Wacken Corridor. Ah, oh, amazing. Such a beautiful place down there. Oh my God, isn't it? It's just, yeah. And for anyone who's not been, I would definitely recommend checking it out at some point. But it just, it just, it's otherworldly, isn't it? You feel like so insignificant. You've got mountains sort of rising up and you're going down this pass and the stars at night are just bonkers. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, horrific terrain though for cyclists oh my god yeah if you're cycling you know get ready to bring a puncture repair kit and uh, it's very bumpy so you spend your whole time just like bumping up and down but uh, bone yeah, shaking well, when we were there we saw so many cyclists and they said like their day rates had gone from sort of 70 80 miles down to about 10 or 20 miles every day while they're in tajikistan yeah well this is the beauty of traveling slowly you see you can just be like ah what's another slow day <laughs> 4,000 meters above sea level going up these very steep rugged terrains yeah you've got to love it <laughs> yeah it definitely there was there was leg burn definitely leg burn and so you came back into uh came back to London and you were pursuing journalism oh no you got the job with Red Bull that sort of led to more sort of people sort of asking you to go on these adventures and was that the one where you were cycling across South America with Reza? Reza. Yeah, Re Reza, Reza. Pakravan. Yeah, that's exactly it. So I was I was in um, Red Bull's office and I was I got a, an email notification about uh, this guy called Reza Pakravan was looking for someone who had cycled um, and was also interested in the environment. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. So I sort of dropped him a note and said, yeah, I'm interested. You know, he was also looking for someone with TV experience and I'd been working as a news anchor in Hong Kong. Um, so I just dropped him a note. We met up for a drink. I really, really liked him. We got on really well. Um, and ultimately he said, yeah, do you want to come join me? And his plan was to travel along the Trans-Amazonian Highway in Brazil and Peru. Um, well, a it's a through Brazil, but into Peru as well. Um, looking at deforestation and how it impacts people on the ground. And um, essentially, we ended up doing that. And it was a, a fantastic trip, but it was also unbelievably heartbreaking. And you realize, especially now at the moment, the environment's like very much uh, front of mind, just exactly the global impact of what we consume and what we use and how it impacts um, all of us really. And I hadn't really linked before that trip, the, what I was consuming to the source. But, you know, when you're cycling past burning forests and you can smell it when it's such a visceral um, experience, when you, you've got the, the smoke in your nostrils and the dirt of the road in your lungs and you suddenly think, God, this is because I, you know, want a beef burger and this land's being cleared for cattle ranching or palm oil. or um, And that was pretty eye-opening to say the least and then talking to peoples whose family members had been murdered through illegal logging and you know gut-wrenching stories of gold mining and mercury poisoning and and then suddenly I'm like whoa okay this is a much bigger issue than I'd ever really kind of considered or thought about so that was a journey that had a purpose to it and I think you know our purpose when I was cycling back from Malaysia to London was you know we needed to get home it was a very much an A to B type journey um, and then this journey with Reza was different again, because it was an adventure with purpose. And I, I definitely took a lot from that as well. Um, and it's something that I'd like to continue to, to do more of because I found that quite meaningful. What was the, um, cycle? How long were you sort of cycling for? 
So the whole trip was three months and it was a mixture of sort of cycling the, the, the highway. It was a mixture of um, taking small biplanes and then inevitably, because it was a, a filmed thing for TV, you'd, you'd spend time in the, in the van as well. So it was, um, it was different again because it wasn't like every day on the bicycle going A to B. It was very much like purpose driven, like we need to interview these people, um, telling the story through the mechanism of the bicycle. So different again. Oh, wow. And so, and with that, I mean, as you say, you heard some of the most sort of gut-wrenching stories and the sort of, because you're spending three months sort of on and off with him, how did you find, we, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about the partner that you pick going on these trips because they're incredibly intense at times. And if you can sort of tolerate, because as I said, quite a few times as last week we had Elsa and she was saying like when she did her trip, she was encouraged to get a partner to come and do it. And I always say you've got to be very specific about who you pick and about the sort of relationship you have. What was the sort of difference between Reza and Charlie in a sense of you didn't know Reza before yeah. you went on this big trip? It's, that's a really interesting question because with Charlie, you know, it's unconditional. You know, you can have a bad day and you can be like, um, but when you're getting to know somebody, it's it's a whole different dynamic, especially doing a journey that's physical and long and long hours. Um, and I, I'm happy to say Reza is now like a brother to me and I love him to bits. Um, but what was fascinating is that inevitably when you spend 24 seven with someone, little niggles will come up and um with the best will in the world whether it's your your absolute life partner or whether it's someone you've just met there will be a little bit of tension and I think what I've come to realize doing more of these journeys especially not just this one with Reza but also one I did with Ness Knight and Laura Bingham was that conflicts do arise and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just how do you handle them and actually, on the kayak journey, we went to see a, um, a psychotherapist before we set off or a psychologist. I'm, not, I'm never sure of the difference, to be honest, John. Um, and one thing that was really handy was he said, you know, make sure you have a common goal. So if you have a common goal, the chance of conflict is dramatically reduced. And I think that um, came up on the trip with Reza is that he was trying to speed. He's a speed cyclist. You know, he's broken world records for uh, cycling fast. I am at the other end of the spectrum. So although we had a common goal of producing a documentary, the, the mechanism of getting there was somewhat different. So that inevitably did cause a little bit of like tension. But equally, I think that re made me realise that as someone who will actively avoid conflict, you know, if you are meant to be friends with someone, you can have a bit of conflict and you can resolve it and you can be friends. And that was really powerful for me. Um, to realise that just because you, you say a bad or cross word, it doesn't mean that's the end of a friendship. Very nice. And three-month journey, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of ask you to sort of tell some of the stories that you probably saw and heard from there. Um, but maybe, I mean, can you or the yes. sort of story? Oh, right. <laughs> they sounded, sounded pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> As in the arguing or just the... the no, I meant like the stories from that documentary, some of the gut-wrenching stories that you were sort of talking about and some of the maybe stories of hope and joy. Yeah, so I think that was, that was the thing on this trip. You know, we were going into very remote areas and looking at how communities are dealing with deforestation. And we met this one lady called Diana. And unfortunately, her father had been murdered um, trying to protect um, the indigenous um, land which, which his family lived on. And she's now a campaigner, kind of campaigning for um, indigenous rights to, to the land, because basically it's been shown that when indigenous people have land rights, the deforestation is greatly reduced. So that's one of the major ways that deforestation can be um, reduced. And just sort of talking to her is... You know, you can hear these stories, but when you're when you're looking eyeball to eyeball to someone, when you're hearing and feeling their pain, it it really brings it to life in a way that, you know, we can talk about deforestation from the comfort of our homes and then check and scroll through Instagram. But when you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you've actually lost your dad, your family at risk every single day. Um, and I think that for me was just 
really woke me up to, to the issue. And then also the solutions. We met so many people who are like putting um, GPS detectors on trees that have like uh, a microphone in, which will alert communities to any sort of noise of a chainsaw. And you think, wow, okay, there's some real cool tech solutions to this problem as well. Or people trying to um, farm in a, in a more sustainable way. So there's, there was a lot of hope there too. Um, and I think that... I came back in one sense going, oh God, everything is screwed. Like end of the world is here already. And then on the other hand, I was like, well, actually, no, there are a lot of really amazing people working really hard on solutions. So we've got to kind of focus on the hope a little bit. Mm, I think um, it's also quite a bit sort of just coming out of COP26, which one hopes uh, will show show a bit of encouragement towards I it. hope so I hope so and I hope it's not to quote Greta but uh, blah 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 I hope it's um like genuinely meaningful change because yeah I think it's so easy to think oh this is a governmental thing and this is business things but actually as individuals we can all kind of look at what are we consuming what's the source of it and on mass there's like real power in the purse so I think it needs to be concerted effort, individuals, businesses and governments kind of all pulling together to, to, to avoid conflict, find one common goal, which hopefully is to like not shaft the planet. So, um, yeah, we live in hope. And I suppose your trip from there, was that the sort of when you saw it and saw South America and the sort of places around there, was that your sort of encouragement to go back to Guyana? Yeah, so I, well, I came back from that trip and I was obviously, I think anyone who loves to travel will know what I mean by like the whole itchy feet thing. You know, when, you, when you're stationary for too long, it's like, ah, I need to get out. And it just so happened that I'd met this lady called Laura Bingham at an adventure festival called Campfire. And she rang me up one afternoon. I was, I think I must have been post-lunch at Red Bull, you know, when you're like slightly in that post-lunch slump in a bit of a food haze. And she said, you know, how do you feel about doing a world first kayaking journey source to sea down Guyana's Essequibo River? And I think I must have thought, float down a river, pina colada in hand, you know. Um, so I, I essentially agreed to it, having done like very little kayaking in my life. The only time I'd kayaked was in New Zealand um, and I hated it. I thought it was a rubbish sport, couldn't understand why anyone did it. But anyway, we sort of trained for six months in the darkness of winter in Wales for a hot, humid Amazonian expedition. And uh, it was that was a journey, I think, that has changed me like no other. Um, I got quite sick off the back of it. I got leishmaniasis, which is a flesh-eating parasite. Um, I had to have chemotherapy on my return to try and get rid of it. Um, you're never entirely sure if it's gone. Um, but in a funny way, it was also one of the best experiences of my life because the journey was incredible. Um, I've definitely, yeah, I think there's a lot of good you can do with that as well because talking about doing these journeys and stumbling across stories, I found out that leishmaniasis, the disease I got, you know, it's a neglected tropical disease, second biggest uh, parasitic killer after malaria. Um, but most people who get it are poor and live in remote areas. So there's not much sort of awareness raised about it. So it's sometimes like, to, to the point we were making earlier is, you know, life hands everyone all sorts, you know, you don't know what cards you're going to be dealt. And it's like trying to make the most of the card you have been given. Um, so, yeah, I think that was a, a journey that awoke me in many ways, so to speak. And I mean, that, that as you said, that was a sort of world first with Laura and Ness. And when we when you spoke recently about the psychotherapist saying the sort of common goal, the, obviously the common goal was to get from source to sea. Was that in the quickest time possible or was that with a sort of further purpose of looking at local communities, speaking with them? Yeah. So this was a fascinating journey in the sense of the goal was source to sea, world first. So that, that was that was the goal. But within that, you know, you're going from pristine virgin forest at the source to the Atlantic Ocean. And it takes in the breadth of the communities along the way. And we sort of we did it in conjunction with the YY community, which are the community closest to the source of the river. And we had five guides with us going to the source and then two guides, Anton Rommel, joined us for the journey to the Atlantic Ocean. And 
what we saw and witnessed on this journey was sort of that slow creep of humanity going from this beautiful untouched wilderness to passing gold mines. You know, we could no longer drink the water. We couldn't wash in it because of the mercury that's used to extract the gold um, can make you very sick. And it was really interesting seeing the impact of humanity on our environment. And, you know, we passed one of the second biggest open pit mine in, in, the, in South America called Oh My Mine. And around it, you know, you've got sort of sparse trees where the dense rainforest had once been and you've got like capuchin monkeys clinging on to their last bit of land. And sort of seeing that and going, God, okay, wow, I, I know what's further upstream. I don't know what's coming downstream, but it really, we felt the journey of that river that so many people call home. And I think it was a really interesting journey in that regard. Wow. With the three of you, well, five of you, going all the way. And it was just kayaking the whole yeah, way. Yeah, so, so the first bit we had um, a, a team hiking to the source. And I say hiking to the source, you know, a, a good movement during the day is four kilometers. Um, so you are literally hacking your way through dense primary rainforest. And, you know, in that section, we went to see the helicopter rescue people before we set off. And they said, look... We can, we can absolutely rescue you, but not in that particular bit because we need an area for the rotator blades in order to be able to land. So we essentially knew we were shafted in that particular section if something went wrong. And that was when, you know, I nearly sat on a deadly snake. Um, unfortunately, I got my foot stuck between a, a log and a vine and I was waggling it for about, you know, must have been a minute and a half or so. And then from behind me, Laura goes, oh my gosh, there's a snake. And literally two inches under my bottom was something called the Labaria snake, which is known for its fast, swift and, and deadly attacks. Um, next thing I know, Jackson, one of our guides, is macheted it to death. And I just looked at Jackson. I'm like, you know, Jackson, why did you kill the snake? And he just stared back at me and said, well, Pip, if I didn't kill the snake, it would have killed you. And then, whoa, you know, that is a moment where you are fully confronted with your own ego and your own insecurities. And I think that really changed the whole trip for me because, you know, I'm I was suddenly going to sleep, like panicking. I was having night terrors. I couldn't, I couldn't settle my spirit because I'm like, I just want to run home. I just want to go home. And in that moment, I kind of realized, you know, you can't change your problems, but you can change your reaction to them. And I think one of the bravest things I did on that trip was sort of open up to my teammates and say, guys, I'm really struggling here emotionally. I don't know how to deal with this. And suddenly, rather than sleeping on the edge um, of the team, like in our hammock, in my hammock, I would suddenly be put in the middle and then a fire would appear when there hadn't been a fire at night before. And I think it was little things like that that really sort of made me appreciate the environment, appreciate how small we are in the grand scheme of life and actually not being top of the food chain um, was very, very humbling. And then also technology, you know, suddenly only being able to access tech when we physically wanted to. We had to set up a like a satellite system. It's called a BGAN. And anytime you could see open sky, sort of point up to the sky. And I realized on that journey, you know, tech is so in control of me. Like I was, I was feeling this urge to check social media. And having had a Jaguar come through our camp, I can absolutely say that the feeling of getting a notification or an email ping is not dissimilar to when a Jaguar comes through your camp, you know? Obviously, it's heightened, but we are zapping ourselves day in, day out with these low-level threats. But in the jungle, when the threat goes away, you can relax a little bit. But in, in sort of urban life, we can't because they're constantly there. So I sort of came back from this journey with a new appreciation of not just life, but how to sort of like maybe use tech to enable life um, to be that little bit better rather than like it controlling me in quite the same way. Wow, that just sounds absolutely incredible. And this was a long journey with Ness and Laura and were they the same? Did they have their own sort of... Yeah, well, I mean, all of us, all our teammates, like Ramel, for example, he um, had a new baby. He had a baby the day before we set off. Um, he didn't even know the name of his child. And, you know, for, for the YY community, guiding is one of the ways to earn money. And um, he decided that that's what he wanted to come and do. So I think we all had our um, 
individual battles and struggles and Laura especially because she had an eight-month-old baby at the time um, and this is this was the most dangerous thing I have ever done you know on a daily basis we were encountering scorpions snakes we were paddling past 18-foot caiman um, you know I, I picked up a, a neglected tropical disease that you know could eat off my face essentially so it, it's like whoa it was it was one of those journeys where I think everybody struggled um, to varying degrees it was also like we would belly laugh daily so to, to that point about adventure you have the highs and you have the lows it was I've never felt more alive in, in some senses and I've never felt more on edge in others God, sorry. Did you say you like you didn't laugh or you did laugh? Oh no, we did every oh, day. Right. We, we right. would we would belly laugh. We would howl with laughter. I mean, just some of these situations, and and I think that um, laughter is such a good tool just for coping generally, isn't it? And there was such joy in in that bond. As and you know, anyone who's done like a team thing knows like there there is a real kind of bond that happens when you spend time with each other, like for good and for bad, you know. Um, but yeah, you kind of, we left as family ultimately. And, you know, I've seen far too much of those ladies to, to be otherwise. God, it sounds such an amazing trip. And as you say, the sort of bond that you have at the end of that is just incredible. And the stories you can probably tell for years to come. Yeah, I, th I think one of the really important things that I took from that trip, though, was the the role of travel and the ethics of travel and who's traveling and why and what's the impact and it was something that i hadn't really thought about enough before if i'm honest john you know as a white privileged traveler from the global north with a platform you know however small um i received a message on the journey from someone i really admire and respect on twitter and it was a direct message and they said Pip, you know, what you're doing is remarkable, not least because it is neo-colonial and racist. Um, and then, you know, that, that's, that's a hell of a message to receive. Um, my initial reaction was very unhelpful. It was sort of one of like uh, classic white fragility, tears and embarrassment and, and the worry that people were going to see me and, and what I was doing is racist. And then I kind of really thought about the comment a little bit further. And I realized, you know what, actually, as someone who has traveled and someone who has had the privilege to travel, I hadn't thought enough about it. And actually, by putting up selfie after selfie or by only presenting a country through um, my image and, and my lens, that is a form of neocolonialism and that is racist. And ultimately, I came to realize on that journey, you know, there's so much about the work that I've done previously that I would do differently. And I'm I'm really genuinely sorry for how I presented myself on social media um, through that expedition. But it was, a, it was a really interesting learning that, you know, we can be well-intentioned, but we can still unintentionally hurt other people around us. And I think it's just something I wanted to raise because I don't think enough of us in the adventure industry are necessarily aware of it if we're white travellers. And I think it's something that's super important, um, and I think it needs to be discussed because, yeah, it's uncomfortable uh, to, to think of yourself as your or your actions as being racist. But quite often we are we are without intending to be. Uh, yeah, I think it sort of depends. I know Benedict Allen, who was on the podcast when he came back from Papua New Guinea, he was accused of being racist. But as he said, when he travels, his whole understanding is a his whole concept travel is about learning. It's about going to these cultures and learning from them. It's not about going in and sort of, you know, taking, well, whatever. It's about sort of learning from the different cultures and seeing that your way is not necessarily the right way or the only way. And as I say, he was just accused because he was in a Papua New Guinea tribe and because of him being a white male, I think the Guardian came after him saying that what he was doing was a form of colonial um, exploring back from a Victorian age. But as you say, his intentions were just to go and learn. Yeah. Uh, and I think this, is, this raises an interesting point that maybe I think travelers need to think about more generally is like, why 
have we been welcomed into the communities that we're going to? Um, is there an exchange of knowledge? Like, and and I th- I think this is. I'm not articulating myself brilliantly, but there definitely needs to be it needs to be not a one way thing. It needs to be an exchange, and we need to make sure that we are actually welcomed into countries because I th- I think that's that's the thing about colonialism, isn't it? It's like previously people would just go into a country and say, oh, what can I what can I learn or what can I take? Whereas there needs to be a, a new way of thinking and a new um, discussion around this, I think. So, as I say, I'm not articulating myself brilliantly, but I do think there needs to be an awareness on the part of the traveller um, about, am I, sh- should I even be going here? For example, our, our expedition, you know, should, should I be doing a world first in a country that's not my own? Um, there's a, there's a whole load of ethical questions that have definitely come up for me as a result of this journey that I hadn't thought enough about. And I'm still trying to, as you can probably hear, still trying to puzzle it all out, but I definitely think the conversation needs to be had. But do you think that when Laura Bingham brought it to you, her idea was a world first, but it was more also about, you know, learning because by going to Guyana, you're learning about their way of life. You're learning about their communities, their people. And, you know, let's just say you're not welcome. You, If you got to the community and you weren't welcome, you would leave. Ah, well, in, in this particular incident, you know, we had to get permission. We had to like clear it with the government, like at every stage, actually on every journey, it's especially uh, important to like get all, all the right kind of clearances. But yeah, it's, it's when does learning become exploitation? I think that's the key thing. It's like, yes, it's it's fantastic. And I think that's one of the benefits of travel. It's like, there is so much we can learn just, and, and that's one of my favorite things, my favorite quotes actually is, everyone can teach you something. Um, but it, it comes down to, is this exploitative in any way? Um, if yes, we need to reevaluate. Did you think that with your trip? Um, I think what I came to realize is that actually social media can exacerbate that massively. You know, um, I was guilty of posting selfie after selfie after selfie and I wish I hadn't. Um, And so, yes, in in that sense, I think the message that I received was accurate. I think unintentionally, um, the way I presented Guyana probably was through a neo-colonial lens. And and for that, I'm genuinely sorry. did I intend to do it? Absolutely not. And it's just it's just made me really consider, you know, how to travel going forward. And I think, you know, and we talk about it often, but like, you know, when you take a photo, make sure you say, can I take a photo? You know, have permission. And it's just kind of the general courtesies um, of, of the ethics of travel, which, um, you know, that go beyond just having an adventure because it's good fun. Yeah, very, very true. Take it. If someone took a picture of me in the street. I'd feel pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think it's it's just coming down to being like a a, a decent human being and 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 thinking a bit bit deeper, which maybe I I neglected to do. And yeah. So do you think it was just by posting that social media on social media the way you were representing that you that you found troubling? I, I think travel itself is problematic. I mean, there's some wonderful benefits to it, like like you were saying about learning, and um, and I definitely and I, I love it as well. Like it it's it, it is good for connection and it's good to bridge understanding and foster understanding. But it's also it's also got its dark side, and I think we just need to check in more regularly, like as to what the motivation is here and what is the impact and how how are we impacting um, the country and, and people that we are um, lucky enough and privileged enough to to be going to. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's very true. I think, you know, with flying and everything, you need to sort of, you know, look at, at about why. But I also think that by traveling, you open up you broaden your horizons and you open yourself up to all sorts of new ideas and new new experiences in a sense of if you just confine yourself to an area, that's all you know. It's like if you live in a cardboard box, that's all you'll know. And by going out and exploring, 
you get to know these new communities, you know a different way of life, you know that your way is not the only way. And otherwise you become very narrow-minded in a sense of this is the only way it should be done and this is the only way to go. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. But I think in a, in a globalized world, and I've, ironically, I'm not arguing against this point. No, but no, just, no, no, it's, um, it's an interesting sort of discussion to sort of have. Yeah, but I, th- I think in a globalized world that there are ways to get outside of that, definitely. Um, and it, I, I think that was the, the main takeaway from this trip is it just it just made me reconsider, um, you know, the, the ethics of travel. No, very, very, very true. In terms of sort of going on, it's sort of like what in, you're sort of saying more of a VR type situation or are you no, saying no, I, th- I think i definitely think there's a place for travel i think it's brilliant and i think people should still um be doing it but maybe we need to be doing it less and we definitely need to be considering um who's profiting from the travel um you know if you're saying traveling to um a country you know is it is it a local tour tour operator that you're using or is it a foreign tour operator in which case you, you, you want to be trying to put money back into local pockets. You want to make sure that tourists are actually welcomed in a place. Um, and yeah, I, I, I know I appreciate the irony of saying this as someone who's traveled and who hasn't thought about it enough. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of just, just raising it as something that I wish I had thought more about. No, no, very true. I mean, uh, what's it next summer? I think the plan is to do a documentary with about eight others looking at sustainable tourism and so going to different communities around Europe looking at more sustainable ways of travel in those sort of communities and in terms of rather than I don't know in the sort of social media age when I don't know a sort of big travel influencer puts sort of tag of this place suddenly let's just say Rainbow Mountain in Colombia is it? Uh, is it Rainbow Mountain or Peru? In Peru, yeah. Um, suddenly, this place which had no tourists suddenly is now, you know, on every social media swarms of tourists go there to have their picture taken on Rainbow Mountain, and it's is that sustainable for the future? You know, you've seen Thailand cut off beach access tourists so that the coral reefs can regrow again it's sort of looking at different aspects about how sustainable tourism can be more managed in a sense oh my god i want to watch that john that sounds amazing um but no no i I think you raise a really interesting point and as you say yeah there are times of course when you are going through and you are you do have that sort of uneased uneasy feeling of am i what am I doing here or what am I here for the right reasons mm. and I, th- I think listen to that you know if there's, there's a sense of unease and it, it's a gut feeling that maybe something's a bit off but um you know we're, we're not perfect humans are we we all cock up we all make mistakes and we all learn and grow from that so I think you know we, we can but kind of try and improve of course well, it has been such a pleasure listening uh, to your stories. There's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, with the first being on these sort of trips and expeditions that you do, what's the one gadget that you always take with you? Um, it's not so much a gadget, but it's a diary. I keep a, day, a daily diary. So um, yeah, well, actually, I suppose on that sense, it's my iPhone because I always write my diary on my iPhone. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Uh, I know on one of my trips three years ago, I I always tried to, well, actually, I was sort of filming it. So I was sort of trying to capture different parts, but also writing it down, always key. Uh, what's, what's your favorite travel or adventure book? I'm going to cheat a bit on this one um, because I think travel is echoed in life, like I, I mentioned. And I think... Have you have you heard of the poetry pharmacy? No. Oh my gosh! So if you haven't checked it out, I really recommend it. It's I love poetry, and um, for each emotion, there's a little poem prescription. So if you're feeling like happy, there's a little happy poem there, or anxious, or whatever the emotion is that you're feeling, and there's a there's a a poem for that, and I just love it because. 
yeah, I think there's a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom. Um, you don't have to have travelled through countries, travelling through life. And, and that I love. I love that little book. And why are adventures important to you? To, to our point earlier that everyone can teach you something. And um, I think, yeah, like as we grow old, we, we refine our ways, right? Let's not Very get stuck true. in our ways. Let's refine them. Very true. And what is your favorite quote or motivational quote? Well, I would say everyone can teach you something. Um, towards the end, when we were paddling to the Atlantic Ocean, I find mantra really powerful. And I was going, you can do this, you are doing this. You can do this, you are doing this. To every paddle stroke as the headwind was battling us. So yeah, one of those two. You can do it, you are doing it, or everyone can teach you something. What was the feeling like when you got to the the mouth of the the river? Hey! It's funny it's it's like we turned up and i'm like i can see where we're gonna finish and then we had this blooming headwind you had your huge waves because we'd hit the atlantic ocean and i remember john just seeing this pink house on my right for what felt like hours i was just like really paddling and i wasn't moving i was like oh and there was a point where i'm like we are not going to make this and then finally we get there and um our, our fixer on the ground had set up like a banner to welcome us back which had disintegrated into the sea we stopped outside a fish processing plant so it just stank of shrimp um and then i finally got out my boat we got all the media from guyana lined up i managed to slip land on a groin paddle wax me on the head i mean it was just it was classic clumsy stewart here and um yeah it was it wasn't the most salubrious finish let's put it like that were you using like a traditional kayak or a more? So we did a mix on the on the way to the source. We used a traditional dugout canoe um, because it was there were so many like obviously the river narrows um, and we didn't want it to get. We had inflatable kayaks for the remainder of the journey and we didn't want them to be punctured. So we sort of did a mix. The first bit getting to the source, the, the traditional canoe, and then the inflatable lightweight kayaks for portaging around rapids and waterfalls. Um, later on in the journey which were individual so we had that nice dynamic between being in a team in the canoe and then being in individual kayaks for the the remainder of the journey amazing and so when you did you have family there at the end or no no so it was um it was just immediate and then we packed up our kayaks and put them in a taxi and went back and it was yeah a strange sort of finish but you know yeah usually usually they're always quite underwhelming (laughs) Yeah, because you kind of pick it up and then you're like, oh my gosh, I've been dreaming of a bed for three months and now I'm in a bed and I'm like, I want to be back in my hammock. Um, And yeah, the hotel had run out of food and it was just like one of those things where you're like, oh, this is not how I imagined our night of celebration to go. But, you know, it is what it is. Very true. People listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of big grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started? Ask for help and have a sense of humor because I think ultimately if you're new at something, you're going to be a bit rubbish, right? So just get used to the, the fact that, you know, you're a bit rubbish and just crack on. Like, I think the, the biggest question I would say is ask yourself, what would happen if I didn't do this? And I think that's for me where the fear kicks in. It's like, actually, I, I've got more fear of not living my life like I want to than I do by doing this big hairy goal. Very nice. And Pip, but for people listening, how can they sort of follow you and find you on your sort of big adventures? Uh, well, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Pip Stewart. I've just written a book about the Guyana trip called Life Lessons from the Amazon. So you can you can read that and um, yeah, kind of see, see. I try to take each chapter a learning about the trip, whether it's like happiness or appreciation or conflict um, and tie it to stories that happened along the way. So yeah, the, check out the book if you're so inclined is that the is that an illustration or is that a sort of diary of the time um so it's a mixture of both essentially it's a a diary but but, um trying to tie the stories in because to our point right at the beginning often people don't care about these journeys right john they no one gives a monkeys um and it's often like what can i learn from this trip so I, i wanted to bring the i hate to use the word wisdom but more like the lessons that i learned along the way um so people can kind of use them in their own daily lives so a mixture of lessons and and stories to illustrate those lessons very nice yeah well you can probably probably perfect time coming up to christmas now hopefully hopefully 
Well, we'll leave a link to the book in uh, the description below and you can check Pip out at Instagram and all her social handles. And Pip, I just thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure listening to your stories. Oh, likewise, John, and I really hope and I can't wait to see this documentary. Yeah, I will. It needs to get off the ground first. Yeah, <laughs> like most things, but it sounds really good. Sounds really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter at zebraadventures.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you did, tag me on Instagram. I'm always keen to connect with other explorers and adventurers. And I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.